Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and sorting by nil. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. No follow-up this week, so we can dive right into topics. But before we did, I wanted to ask you for a quick ergonomic update about that tiny little weird handheld mouse that you bought a couple months ago. You said you got one, but there were some issues with it. I wondered if you ever got those resolved or just ended up getting rid of it. Yeah, it, it was going to require a commitment of time, and I wasn't enough in love with the mouse to make the commitment of time. Cool. So, no. But that doesn't mean that somebody else wouldn't like it. My sense was that I never quite got to the point where my hand could relax on it. Yeah. It, it just required the teeniest bit of closing tension. Just... Uh, kind of like you're trying to touch your thumb to your pinky. Mm-hmm. Just the yeah. ti- and it wasn't much. It was just the tiniest bit would allow me to get a slightly better grip on this thing. And that was all it took to just make my hand start hurting. Mm. Um, so, no. But I do know people who love it. So if you're looking for a mouse, and I would say particularly if you have slightly smaller hands it may be a great option for you. Hmm. So. Cool. So what have you been working on this week? <sighs> More antler. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, so uh, spent some time pounding on Unicode. So we talked a week or two ago about how I was concerned about trying to make sure that I could handle all the necessary glyphs, you know, Mm -hmm. all the English characters, uppercase, lowercase, but also Japanese, Chinese, Korean. um, And then even the potential of having to deal with things like Unicode because or uh, uh, emoji, because even though I wouldn't advise anyone to use emoji for things like custom function names, FileMaker supports it. So that means I need to support it. And so there was a little bit of back and forth on that. And uh, things were slightly complicated by the fact that it required some special code in older versions of Antler to extend the support range for characters. But in the more recent versions, you don't need that. So I'm putting in the the old code and it's not doing anything and I'm confused. And then it turns out that it was handling it all anyway. Um, and then as I started then testing with some of that, I bumped into issues where even though antler will accept Unicode in the source data, I can't type it into the grammar. Hmm. So even to things that I still in my head traditionally think of as higher ASCII <laughs> things like uh, the single character not equals symbol rather than uh, less than greater than but the actual not equals there's our show title right there <laughs> um, he's from a higher ASCII <laughs> a higher plane of ASCII mm-hmm. um, yeah so I can type them into the grammar because the grammar is just written in a text editor But it turns out that Antler won't accept that character. I have to hand it the Unicode coding for it, which is like a backslash U 
2044 or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, not equals. I know about that. Um, so, and that was to a certain degree where my unit tests started exploding. Because as soon as I bumped into one problem, we're like, oh wait, I thought I thought the grammar was fine. The grammar is not fine. I started making tests for everything. Um, like literally everything. Like I've, I've got test calculations that are just doing simple things like add two numbers, subtract two numbers, divide two numbers, multiply two numbers, use one number to the exponent of the other number, literally testing every single operator in the language because there were some weird behaviors in a couple little spots. I was like, nope, just unit testing at all, which is awesome. This, this is one of those behaviors that I'm going to spend the next five years of my life smacking myself in the head that I didn't get into earlier. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, there's only about 50 or 60 unit tests so far. But it's neat how I just don't have to worry about that code anymore. Like It can totally break. I can break it easy. Single character mistyped. And all of that code is going to break. But it's going to tell me it broke. Yeah. And then as I'm building more unit tests, I'm like, oh, okay. So I don't really want to be retyping all this code every time. So I started spending some time kind of abstracting unit tests. Um, when there are 10 unit tests, the order of them doesn't really matter. When there's 50 or say 1,000 by the time I'm done... I need to be able to find them. Yeah. I, I need to be able to locate them in a list. Um, I know some database developers who cannot be organized data. <laughs> yeah. This is a little bit more of like a librarian question than a database designer question. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just kind of moving these things around, reorganizing them. If I can make each test a little bit shorter in code, I can see more on screen at a time things like that. And so it's all becoming more readable, um, figuring out how to say like, I'm going to feed X into this. I want to see what comes out at the other end. There's a whole class of tests where literally what I want to get back out is X again. Like if I hand it this string, I want to get back out the string because I'm just doing a basic test of the thing that identifies strings. Later, I will have more involved tests that say, hey, can you find this string in the middle of a larger calculation? But the simplest version goes, hand it a string, get back to the string. Mm -hmm. And so I don't actually have to have two different tests that say, here was the input, here's the expected output. What I really just need is something that goes, here's the input, did you get that back? And that's a really tight, consistent little chunk of code that doesn't really deviate from one version to another aside from the input. Hey, look functions. Um, I can probably get it down to one line. I don't know. It feels like pushing it. It's also, it's weird for me a little bit because there's a different mindset for doing the unit tests. Previously when I tried it, I was thinking in terms of writing code. Mm-hmm. And now as I'm getting into this, I'm starting to look at it as aggressively trying to break my code. (laughs) 
And it just, it's a subtle shift. But once your brain shifts into that, A, I find it easier to like sit down and write 20 unit tests, 30 unit tests in a row, rather than jump back and forth, which is where I'd like to get to. Optimally, I'd really love to get to test-driven development, where I'd say, oh, I want to write this function. Let me write 10 tests for it. Now I'll write the function. <laughs> because the act of writing the tests will help me specify what it is the function needs to do. But uh, at this point, I'll settle for a substantive mode shift between the two. And in my head, as I was dealing with it, it's also in my head a little bit similar to kind of what happens when you start getting the way Swift's if-let construct works. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the unwrapping optionals in a conditional construct. And for those who haven't played with Swift, anytime it is possible that a particular variable value will be nil, Swift wraps that up in another data type called an optional. And you have to unwrap that before you can use it. Basically say, hey, if this is not nil, then you can use it. Otherwise, you have to do something else. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that large portions of code bugs are caused by, I was expecting this to return something and I got back nothing. And I just continued running as if there was something there. And at some point along the way, that broke everything. And so Swift forces you, for the most part, to get into a mindset where if it's possible for this thing to be nil, when you're writing the code, you need to handle what happens if it's nil. As a, as a specific code path. Mm -hmm. And that ended up massively armoring my code in FM Perception. Because FM Perception was initially written in Swift. I have very few doubts that if I had done it in C-sharp first, it would have been a much less stable piece of software. I actually came across a case yesterday where I, I kind of wished that Swift had an else let. So I could do like an if let mm. these values, else let this one value out of the first values list. I was able to accomplish the same thing with just nested if lets, but... Basically, I had a, I had a mm -hmm. condition where the outer if let has two optionals to check, and both of them have to pass mm -hmm. to be used in yes. the block. Been but there. there's also a case where it's fine where just the just the first one of those two has a value. So I need to kind of code around for both of those. And it was funny the way that I was writing it. I was just, I was literally doing things in the right order. So my code would run that was doing both things and then my code would run that was doing the one thing, but I would only see the result from the second block of code. So it looked like my code was never running or working. So it wasn't until I threw some, some print logs and I'm like, oh crap, I'm just undoing the work over top of myself. So yeah, it was just amateur stuff. Yeah, when you do that if let where you're setting multiple constants, Mm-hmm. I'm almost tempted if, like, in that construct, the else would share the same scope. 
yeah. and would have any of the ones that did pass. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, I do kind of want to see you write a a quick proposal for Elslet <laughs> and just stick that up on the on the Swift language boards. Then again, I'd actually at this point be surprised if somebody hadn't already proposed that. I just wonder what the firestorm looked like. Yeah. Um, I'm betting I would be asked not to come back. <laughs> My guess is that would only be if you did it as a jerk. Mm -hmm. But uh, can we get a, a, a switchlet? <laughs> <laughs> that, that joke was only funny to like five people in the world. <laughs> So yeah, a bunch more unit tests. Uh, finally got support in there for handling line feeds in the code. So people who do white space formatting of their FileMaker calculations. Uh, that's now properly being handled. It didn't take long, but it's on the list. Um, and a simplified white space support. So it's easier for me to write templates that properly handle white space. It's still not as simple as I'd like it to be, but we'll see. Uh, probably the most fun from it was <clears throat> changing the way I was doing the Unicode and higher ASCII handling required that I make some adjustments to the way I was spotting operators and in particular the the logical ones and or not mm -hmm. XOR and so I, I was playing in there and then I realized that one of these things is not like the other <laughs> and it's not I can't say A not B that's not a valid expression I can say A and B a or B, but not A, not B. Hmm. Not is a different kind of operator. Um, in my head, and having not done research, I'm calling it kind of a prefix operator. It's an operator that acts on a specific value, but it's not a logical comparison operator. It's almost closer to being a standard function than an operator per se. Well, and there's two ways to type it in FileMaker. There's the the two angle brackets side by side, or the exclamation point with a little, or the equal sign with a little cross through it. Uh, I'm not saying not equals. I'm saying not. So mm -hmm. the logical uh, inversion operator. Not the right word, but it's close. So if you wanted to turn a true a true value into a false value. Hmm. That's not. That, oh, that's not not. It it is not. No, it's not. <laughs> this is this is the dumbest, <laughs> nerdiest who's on first ever. Not on first. <laughs> yes, it is. No, it's not. It's not. Anyway, okay. And then I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was getting really comfortable with that FileMaker error dialogue that kind of outlined what is and is not valid in field names and things like that. Mm -hmm. And found some weird stuff in there. 
Um, the dialogue says you can't use the colon, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. You can totally put a colon in a field name. You can't put two colons in a field name with the colons right next to each other because that's a table occurrence and field reference. But can you put three? You can, but not in a field name. Okay. Um, so if you name a field starting with a colon, I think that's acceptable. And so when you have a table occurrence followed by a field name, you would actually see it appearing as three colons in a row. (laughs) So yeah, so you can use colon, but not double colon. And I was also looking at it and they've got the matched pairs for you can't use open paren or close paren. You can't use open square bracket, close square bracket. And you can't use close curly brace. Huh. <laughs> but open curly brace is entirely valid. That's, Wait, what? <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I, I was trying it out. And it will smilingly, happily accept open curly brace in a field name. But not close curly brace. Which I actually almost think would be the opposite way. Because the open one is the one that creates the expectation for the close. If I just bumped, if I'm running through my parser and I just bump into a close, I don't know that I have any expectation that there had to have been an open. I wasn't waiting for the close. So I can kind of treat it as just a character. I think this is going to be one of those spots where there's like a weird little edge case or possibly something that I haven't delved deep enough to fully understand yet but I think there's something weird in that parser there. But I'd spotted that one a couple months ago and was like, huh, that's weird. I think that's a typo. No, it's not actually a typo. <laughs> you really can't use closed curly brace, but you can use the open. That's bizarre. <clears throat> so, yeah. Um, aside from that, uh, for kind of the second half of the week was just Trying to fit work in between times when my leg hurt really bad. Yeah. Uh, because of a minor bike accident. Uh-oh. Mountain biking? Um, well, I mean, I was on a mountain bike. But no. It was sidewalk biking. Mm-hmm. Nice, clean, fresh concrete. And... Uh, the concrete is not set flush with the ground. It's actually raised about an inch and a half. Hmm. And so I was riding along while looking around and veered a little off my path and started correcting as I realized I was getting close to the edge. And so I was leaning the wrong way as the tire went off the sidewalk. And there was no way to get it back on. Or at least no way for a rider of my skills. Somebody... Better than me could almost certainly have done it. It's the right kind of bike for doing that. It's just the wrong kind of rider. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I was just kind of taking a little shortcut through the nearby campus and totally bailed. So there's a spot on my right leg that's about 8 to 10 inches long and about 3 inches wide that's missing the outer few layers of dermis. Ouch. 
Oof. Oh yeah, it's very pretty. No. Um, and I, I'm going to do all of our listeners a favor by not sending Joe a picture of this so he can't turn it into some kind of chapter art or anything. So you're welcome. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've talked before about things like back pain, neck pain, hand and arm pain. It turns out that it's also relatively difficult to write code while your leg is on fire. <laughs> I, Especially I wasn't if you're aware. Especially standing desk. I, you know, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the most annoying part about sitting, because I did some coding while doing that, was that I'm used to periodically tucking, like I shift around. Mm -hmm. So I'll tuck a leg under me, or I will cross my legs in some way. And this is on the outside of one leg, and there's a whole slew of positions I'm used to sitting in that will not work that way. Ouch. So, Yeah. Kind of fun. So you're kind of coasting in these, I want to say weird positions, except they're not weird positions. I have to sit the right way because sitting the wrong way makes my leg hurt, which should tell me anyway. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's been my fun this week. Well, sorry to hear about your injury, but uh, yeah, that sucks. Another couple of days and it'll be fine. It'll look funny for while after that because this one's going to be pretty but yeah another couple of days and it'll just be ho-hum uh what have you been up to so i have been working on the schema changes that we talked about last week and it was kind of a weird week where i had a bunch of consulting work to do so i didn't actually get to spend much time on retrospective timelines in fact i didn't i don't think i did anything after we recorded until yesterday i had some time to dive back in but yesterday i did all of the schema changes so basically adding the third entity and doing the relationships and decided to go ahead and destroy the other schema i started working on the migration stuff to move from one to the other but the cloud kit side of it is still kind of not very well documented. And I just found it easier to delete <laughs> the old schema from cloud kit. Surprise, surprise. It. Yeah, exactly. So I just basically just took a screenshot of every list of dates that I had. I'll re-enter them later. I've got them somewhere else in the CSV, but it's a lot easier to just to re-enter them in the order that they were in the app. Well, and, and, I also really like, particularly on a mobile app, it's a really good test to have to do a bunch of data entry in your own app. Yeah. Like you will definitely find the friction points if you got to do all that manually without a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I got all the schema stuff done. The other thing that I was thinking about doing was ripping out part of the core data stack. Basically, I'm, I'm using a, a class called core data data source that is kind of abstracted where you create an instance of it with a generic type and you feed in your core data type, your entity type to create an instance of it. So you, you, you create a core data data source for a timeline or for an event or for a date. And then the methods that you call on there are all on that specific NS managed object type. And I've been using that for the last couple of weeks. And I thought about kind of 
removing that abstraction layer and just writing my own data source classes for each of those types. And I got one of them done and it did nothing for me. Like by the time I was done with it, I understood <laughs> the abstraction well enough. I'm like, well, this is just a waste of time now. Like I'm going to end up having three copies of most of the same code. So I'm going to go ahead and keep it. Um, so yesterday, I probably ripped out 40% of the code of my project. Like just going nice. through and simplifying stuff that I had written over like the last couple of weeks to account for all these edge cases. And now it's really stripped down to you know, a small folder of like six parent views, like top level views, the things that I would think of as a layout. There's a subfolder of control views, the so little widgets that do things. And then a folder of view models that encode data between the views and core data and then the core data stuff. And I still have some utility stuff in there, but I think I can actually go through and rip some of those out as well. But the code is vastly simplified. I probably have less than 10,000 lines of code in the entire project at this point. And it's more complex than it's ever been. So I feel like I'm making progress. Nice. Deleting code is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really satisfying. Especially like selecting four entire Swift files and just deleting them all at once. Like, oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever gotten to do that. Yeah, it's nice. So now that I've got the schema set up and I know how to use my data source, I pretty much have a, a solid foundation for the app and I need to get back to work on building the UI. So the first thing to do was to replace the event list with the new event date list. So this is basically, as a refresher, the list, when, you, when you're on a timeline, you tap a timeline row to go to a list of related records. And previously I had that as a list of events and the event had a date start and a date end in the same table. And I wanted a way to show multiple instances of an event if it had a, a start date and an end date but not if it didn't have an end date. So basically I, I came up with four different types of rows. So single events are just things that have just a date with no date range being brought into question. Start date and end date are the starting and ending dates for closed ranges. And then start date and ongoing, so ongoing is the fourth type, is that uh, idea that Dave had a couple weeks ago of like, allow me to, to specify an event with a start date and an open-ended end date that just always returns today or outgoing or whatever that looks like. So I've got that working for the most part, but I came into some interesting issues with how to sort that last one because the way I implemented the ongoing value, it has a date record and a row type called ongoing, but there's a nil value in the date field. So when I sort that ascending, it shows up at the bottom of the list. <laughs> but when I sort it descending, it shows up at the bottom of the list. Of course. Which is weird. It shows up in the same place in the list, whether or not the data itself is sorted ascending or descending. So I need to figure out a way to take those nil value ongoing records and shuffle them to the top of the list. Uh, custom sort comparator. 
Yeah, so I, I found some code to do that with a, uh, an assort descriptor with core data stuff, but it doesn't work. It works on a regular fetch request, but not on my fetch result controller. And I, I played around with it. I swapped the cases, swapped the sort orders. Like just, it wouldn't, like from what I could tell, Xcode was just ignoring it. Like it was overriding the, the three parts of the sorting algorithm that it needed to. And I was using it, like I was basically subclassing the NS sort descriptor and overriding mm -hmm. these three methods, but the, they just weren't being used. Like it would call them, but the code wouldn't work or the, the code higher up would still override it. I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, if you can't get that working, you can also probably use the sort functional, um, the, the like dot sort. Mm -hmm. um, and that yeah. one will also allow you to set as complicated a set of sort criteria as you want. Yeah, I'm not sure I can um, do that. I can do that on an array of stuff, but I don't have an array of stuff. I have a fetch result controller of results. So I can't do regular array type mm. sorting stuff on this collection. Okay. There was a point in one of our discussions where it had sounded like you had an array, but... Yeah, that's that's the okay. path that didn't work that I made last right. week because I would have to re-implement everything that the fetch result controller does in that array. Hmm. So I get so many other things from it it's it's not worth doing. So there's a couple quick approaches I thought on how to solve this. One is to basically create a sectioned list. So I could do two separate fetch requests or just do two fetch requests and concatenate them together in the fetch result controller. We're basically think of like a, a sectioned list of event dates and the ongoing rows could just be at the top in a separate section. And mm -hmm. I can even, even have a disclosure triangle to hide them, something like that. I can totally see it. Yeah. The other option was to create a derived field, which I don't know how to do. Um, but, you know, in FileMaker parlance, create a calculation field that says, if this value is not nil or not empty, then give me this value else. Give me get current date. And I can't figure out how to do that in core data. There's a feature called derived attributes. There's no documentation on them. There is frustratingly a brand new WWDC talk from a couple months ago where they demo a really simplified use of them of how to get a count of all the records in a table. And then he mentions over and over again how well documented it is for developers to take advantage of. This documentation doesn't exist. There are like half a dozen other people on Apple's forums asking where this is. I posted about it 12 days ago on Stack Overflow. I haven't heard anything back. I reposted it today. I asked, reached out to that specific developer who gave the talk twice on Twitter. Haven't got a response. Like nobody knows or no, somebody who does know isn't willing to share. Huh. Have, have you ever considered using one of your um, uh, support requests? I... I might. I only. I've got other more catastrophic stuff. Yeah. To, to save those for, like particularly that uh, navigation bar, edit buttons. I'm <laughs> gonna have to use those for that. Okay. That isn't fixed soon. Okay. Well, yeah. So if you did, if you talk to them on that, you can also while you're talking to them mention, hey, by the way, there's no bloody documentation for this. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. Like the core data documentation, for the most part, is some of the most thorough documentation because it's a really old framework. And from what I can tell, this is the first year that it got new features and didn't get new documentation. Like everything else is very well flushed out. There's lots of examples, but this isn't even mentioned on the page. And all the screenshots are from at least two Xcode versions ago. So I'm like, this is pretty frustrating. So that's the one option is, you know, switch using the calculation field. That's probably what I'll do as soon as I can figure out how to do it. But it's not like you just make a field and then type in a Swift calculation. It, it's got some little field in the, um, the core data GUI, whatever that's called, in the inspector where you check the derived attribute checkbox and it shows you a little box where you type in this weird syntax. It, it's not quite, I mean, it's not regular expression, but it's basically using the names of other properties and the names of all of these functions that you're supposed to know that they don't have a list of for me to look at. But it's not like I can just type in an if okay. statement there. That sounds like the stuff that you use for doing custom sorting. It's a key value coding yeah. thing. And so I found something called BNF definition of cocoa predicates. This is on in yeah. Uh, this is used in the predicate stuff for fetch mm -hmm. requests. And I think this might be what I need, but it's it's full of exactly what things are, not how to use them. Right. So maybe I can show you after the podcast and maybe you can show me what I'm doing wrong. Sure, because I've been playing, uh, like the BNF notation is what I was looking for from the FileMaker calculations. It's the explicit expression of effectively what the parser can handle. Okay. And so it just tells you exactly how to write it. It's not going to tell you what those things do. So I have to infer that, but I have played with some of that because you use the same stuff when you're doing uh, Cocoa bindings mm -hmm. on the desktop. If you want to, you know, I use it in FM perception for displaying the number of records in the current data set, the number of selected records in the data set, and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's what I need. I just, I found it right before the show and I'm like, this looks right, but I didn't see how to actually do. I don't know, like there's NS predicate double colon equals comparison predicate else compound predicate. Like that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with. Um, but it has a whole list of operators and aggregates and literal values and strings and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's something. So I need to figure that out, you know, the, the, how, do, how I'm going to sort those ongoing rows. I could also just exclude them from the list view, but... That's kind of silly. Um, I concur. I like I like the idea of having the ability to toggle that section on and off. So being able to sort them in the right place on the layout, but also being able to maybe add like a segmented control at the top of the list view that shows all data or exclude ongoing records or exclude end date records, which would include ongoing records.
Yeah, I can particularly see that if I've got, say, a hundred ongoing records that keep showing up in that list, and mm -hmm. I always have to scroll past the things that haven't ended yet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the way that I wrote the uh, predicates for the fetch request, I think I can actually modify that where I, I basically... It, you do this with a string. You just pass in these strings for the predicates, which I'm not crazy about, and then you convert them to a weird Objective C syntax when you actually need to call them. But I can write I can write some binding values at the view level to bind the different states to a control, to a segment of control or some toggles, and then have that feed into the data source object and just return. So it's not like I'm just scrunching up the items in the view, I'm actually redoing the fetch request at the fetch result controller level when you modify yeah. that, which would be pretty cool. It's going to be way yeah. faster than just like looping over everything in a list and hiding it. Yeah, writing a query as a string, I mean, it effectively is one of those friction points that I find annoying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, lots of power, Really great, but I bump into the same kinds of indirection problems and encoding problems. It was one that caused me a lot of trouble because I'm using that to do the filtering mm -hmm. of the current data set in FM Perception. And when somebody would search for a double quote, yeah, it would break my stuff until I got that properly encoded. And that's just something I never want to have to worry about. Yeah, I and think I have to worry about it. I mean, I think a lot of this is just legacy stuff with core data. It's a, it's a pretty old framework. It still works, as far as I know, feature for feature between Swift and Objective-C. And I actually saw somebody, uh, I think it was Paul Hudson, the Hacking with Swift guy, write up a blog post, like a wish list for Xcode 12. And one of his items was basically the the Swift UI version of a core data rewrite. So not necessarily core data, but the thing that does the same thing that core data does for Swift UI apps. Like, yeah, that would uh, that'd be pretty great. Yeah, well, I'd be happy to dig into it with you. Cool. So one weird little thing that I came across when I was doing the um, building the list of records yesterday and writing the, the predicates for it, I because I the way that I set up the schema, I've, you've got event and then a one-to-one a -one relationship to the start date and a one-to-one -one relationship to the end date. Now flip that around and you're querying a context of date records and you need to say, give me all of the date records that have an event that is related to this timeline. So we're going two hops away. But which event, which relationship are we going across? We've got to go across both. So I need to write a request that says, give me all dates that have a related start date event related to a timeline and all events that have a end date event related to a timeline. So I had to write two Basically, it's one request you return. It's kind of like <laughs> how you would write a, a SQL statement where you give me all of the records and then do some filtering down on that. So you filter this with predicates. So mm -hmm. the predicate is 
you know, across this relationship equals this value. And then with uh, core data, you can really only pass one predicate or an array of predicates using a compound predicate. So you write the predicates independently and then combine them into an array. And then the, the type of uh, combiner you use is actually dependent on the, the logic you want to do. So is it an or combination or is it an and combination or is it a not combination? So it's, it's got some pretty advanced stuff. And I ended up just playing with different versions of that for about 20 minutes before I realized like none of this is important. <laughs> like it's just the kind of stuff I can geek out over. Um, but yeah. yeah, actually, as you're discussing that, I'm wondering if I've got an opportunity for optimizing some of that filtering. Yeah. Cause it might, I don't know that I ever tested it with an array of predicates, mm. but an array of predicates might well perform faster than the one humongous predicate that I'm using that has tons of ores. Yeah. Hmm. And you Great. can, you can compound compound predicates as well. So you can pass it your array of or predicates and your array of and predicates and then or mm -hmm. them together or and them together. <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff. So yeah, that's uh Lots of core data stuff. I'm definitely starting to get it with this stuff. I've got a a core data book on my wish list that I'll probably get maybe sometime this winter. It's pretty far down on my list, but it's a Ray Wenderlich book that goes into some of the more advanced features of core data, most of which I don't need for this project, which is why it's so far down the list. But it's definitely the type of stuff I want to learn more about for other projects I want to do. So this week, it's going to be about finishing up this weird sorting issue and then going through and finishing up the basic UI for the app. And I need to spend some design time on that visual version of the date list that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So this is less of a you know, UI table view controller, more of a, a visual flowing layout of little capsules of data showing up in positions relative to one another based on time. So basically, I need to figure out how to do this mathematically, but a timeline ends on the current date and it starts on the earliest date from the earliest date record from the earliest event. So I can say, okay, this timeline, the earliest record was in 2014. So this is going to be a five-year timeline. So then I need to figure out how, how big is that going to be and then how to draw stuff relative to one another in that without having the user scroll for 30 seconds on a blank screen. Like, I don't want that either. Um, right. So it won't be, there won't be a way to do it exact, but basically kind of adding padding between them and maybe double double that padding for every N amount of time passed between events yeah i i've spent some time with code like that as well um because that's the way you're talking about it is it's functionally similar to the way we would hack drawing a gantt chart mm -hmm. in filemaker yeah exactly it's the kind of stuff that's easy to do in unity or any kind of 3d environment when you can visualize the timeline 
altogether. But in this case, we're dealing with a phone screen where we're ever, only ever going to see a tiny sliver of the timeline. Yeah. So in a lot of our previous discussions, that feature was not on the 1.0 punch list. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Tell me what you're talking about, Dave. Okay. Well, no. So you're you're right and wrong. The the big version of that feature that compares multiple timelines together that's still not on version one. This is for basically you, you tap on a timeline, and I wanted to have either I guess three three options for version one. Go straight to a list of events sorted by their dates, which is what I have now almost working aside for that one issue we talked about mm-hmm. or go to a visual version of that same thing and then kind of let that whatever i come up with there kind of guide the the design and the branding for the application mm-hmm. um or a better case scenario would be have the option to pick between those two layouts so just a, a tab switching thing on the top to toggle between them so the single version of this I still want to do for version one, the comparing multiple timelines and cross-referencing them relative to one another, that's definitely not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. I need to so figure out how to do the, the simplified version first. Having a timeline that spans 10 years but only has three events mm-hmm. would be a good candidate for just show me the list. Mm-hmm. Whereas something that has six months and 20 events might be a much better candidate for show me the dots. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So in, it could just be a matter of, I mean, what I come up with for that could be based more on just regular list view type things and just adding some space around the, like the sorting sections. So I don't necessarily worry about like the, you know, the three values in 10 years. I don't need to show a 10-year thing spanning multiple screens. I can show that all on one screen at the same time and just make them a little bit further away from one another based on that duration mm-hmm. in that 10-year span. So, yeah. Yeah. It's tricky stuff. So, one other quick topic this week. Well, I guess two quick things. Um, you asked me last week where I was in terms of shipping a beta for version 1. And I was like, I don't really know. I felt like it was further away than I had been previously. And I was right. So the next day I wrote out a list of, basically I went through my punch list and updated everything. And then I wrote a table of contents for the punch list. And that itself has quite a few items on it. And I just finished one of them. You you poor, poor man. Yeah. I, I saw that tweet about the table of contents and I, I lolled. <laughs> yeah. Um... It was so, the table of contents for the punch list for 1.0. Yeah, that, yeah. it's so Joe. It's it, so Joe. It really is. So some of these things are, you know, complex, like the, the schema work took some time. The event list is almost done. The event list visual version will take an undefined amount of time. But then after that, it gets into more quicker implementation stuff. So fixing bugs, adding a settings view, running the reporting views. And the reporting views depend on whether or not I can, like what I do there depends on this visual feature. Because I would like to use the visual feature for those as well. But 
that doesn't have to that could just fall back to the list view then there's widgets to do there's um stuff to do with core data and cloud kit to basically finalize the schema and put it into production mode before i can open up the beta and then there's i still need to deal with app state handling which is i've just been conveniently ignoring <laughs> but there's a there's a hilarious issue where there's a couple of data entry screens where i'm using the on appear modifier on a field to populate it with a value and if i open that screen start editing a value then background the app and come back to it a couple minutes later the on appear function runs again and it replaces it with the, the default value like oops <laughs> like I, I definitely need to do something about that what i need to do is write something on when you go into the background that just saves that data as it is and closes the screen or if it doesn't pass validation just cancel the changes and discard the changes and close the screen yeah so there's app state handling stuff like that those weird bugs that we talked about with the navigation bar <laughs> there's a really weird reordering bug on the timeline so you can manually drag and drop a timeline up and down the list which works flawlessly unless you're dragging from the bottom of the screen so the last list it just you can select it and then it kind of like seizes up and shakes around and then fails and i have no <laughs> idea what's happening there <laughs> but i think the 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 only thing that would the bug that would stop me from shipping is the one i haven't figured out yet which is ipad portrait mode navigation back buttons don't exist and they have to exist so if you open my app right now in portrait mode when you first open it mm -hmm. it will open to a completely blank screen with nothing on it whatsoever oh. and there you can swipe over from the left to reveal the list of timelines but i can't find a way to force that list to show or to put a button up there where it should be that button is there when you rotate into landscape mode and it's there on the iphone which is like the same size class when i rotate it i do see it there but it's just not showing on the ipad and i filed bugs about it and haven't heard anything back so like i don't know what to do with that one these other things i have workarounds for that one i I can't ship until I figure out that or what do I lock the iPad out of portrait mode? <laughs> like well, I mean, you can do it. Yeah, technically <clears throat> wouldn't be wise. <laughs> so then the last section on my, my table of contents punch list would be kind of bells and whistles. So adding things like haptics to some of the controls, improving animations for stuff um adding nice preview cards for the context menus when you you know, tap and hold on a cell or things like that and then uh breaking out of the app a little bit so adding some siri shortcut support to return some data so it's going to be kind of like a miniature api for stuff like that of like write a siri shortcut that can return a list of events on today or make a widget card that just shows today's data and then exporting data. I need to get some kind of CSV export written just because I don't want to lock anybody into the app, myself included. 
like I, I tend not to use any apps that ask you to put data in, but don't give you a way to get data out. So yeah, that's the that's the table of contents. Each one of those has a page or so in my notes file for what to do. So there's one last little thing that I was excited about. Swift UI is officially supported on Swift Playgrounds on iPad now, which just kind of makes me happy because it's not where I'm going to do a lot of work, but there's a type of Swift UI work that just involves trying things over and over again. Like I want to build a visual widget that displays data in a certain way or stacks these fields in a certain way. That's the perfect type of stuff that is suitable for me to sit on the couch and noodle with on the iPad rather than spending time at my computer. So it kind of adds a little bit of extra work that I can do in the day after I kind of use up my six hours of work. I can still save some of those smaller problems for the iPad and just slowly over time develop a kind of a, a Swift UI file of like a miniature library of code snippets of things that are common. So I'm pretty excited about that. I've also been using that to do some of the follow along at some of the blog posts. So rather than firing up Xcode to type in 10 lines of code and make a whole new project, we can just make a playground on the iPad and, and try it out there. Has it been pretty stable? Uh, so far, I haven't seen any issues with it. It's only been a couple of days, but... I mean, it's, it's, Very cool. it's not the type of thing you would want to make a whole app in. No. But making a, a content view and adding stuff to it could be fun. You can use core data in Swift Playgrounds. I'm trying to think, like, do I have to make the entire schema in code and then add it as a resource? Like, I, don't, I don't even want to go down that hole. Yeah, there, there are some people doing things with Playgrounds that I'm not sure it's the right tool for the problem, but... Yeah. Well, a lot of people, like a lot of those tools where you can have an entire core data backend for your app, that's like abstracted away that a teacher would write that so that the student is following along on the main part of the playground, don't even see that part. And they're right. just interfacing with it. Um, but yeah, that could be a big time sink if I started doing that. <laughs>